and welcome to another episode of our ZSL Wild Science podcast. I'm Moni Boom, Research Fellow at the Zoological Society of London's Institute of Zoology, and today we're going to talk about the bad boy of conservation, plastic. Now apparently there's a staggering 5 to 14 million tonnes of plastic entering our oceans every year, and this already enormous figure is on the up. So not surprisingly, plastics have pretty much found a permanent space in the environmental news alongside things like climate change. So today we will be looking at the science behind the news on plastic pollution. What are the impacts of plastics on wildlife, on people and on our coasts? What are the future avenues for research and conservation actions? And how can we reduce single-use plastic in our lives and address this issue of marine plastic pollution? Now, I'm sure you are slowly getting bored of my voice. I almost certainly am. So once again, I have invited a co-host to help me along. And this time, it's ZSL's Charlie Enzo, the project coordinator for estuaries and wetlands. How much coordinating do estuaries and wetlands need? Well, they are a rowdy bunch, so they need a lot of coordination. But mainly what a coordinator does is we help out a lot on budgets, on finances, on procurement, so buying anything for any of our surveys that we do. A little bit of everything, we help out on everything. Sometimes if we're short-staffed on surveys, I'll help out in the field. It's a real mixed bag of uh, what we do. So you do get to go out in the field every so often at least? Every, Every so often, yeah. They let me out. Good. And whereabouts is your field site? The mighty River Thames is our main field site in the UK, and we do some work in Kent. Uh, we do some work in Essex as well, so oysters and seals. Excellent. So I suppose in this work, whenever you're not procuring things, you must have come across plastic pollution. We have seen a lot of plastic pollution, obviously, uh, working on the Thames and working on the foreshore. So it's something that we see sort of daily when we're out in the field. Who's the bad boy of plastic? Good question. I mean, obviously, the single-use plastic bottles are everywhere. And if you go to some of the marshes around the sort of perimeters of London, you'll see hundreds, if not thousands, of plastic bottles around. So they're probably the the one that you see the most. But obviously, the the much smaller plastics that are obviously detrimental to wildlife, when you're filtering out some of the water, you do see a lot of the very, very small plastic pollution as well. So Charlie is our expert on plastics. That's very worrying. Well, I suppose um, by the end of this podcast, we'll both be experts on plastic pollution. Yes, that would be good. That'd be great. Well, good. Well, we guess to hope. So let's start by finding out why is plastic the bad guy? So our first expert is Sarah Nelms, who is a PhD student at the University of Exeter and Plymouth Marine Lab. Can you tell us a bit about the problem, the scale of the problem of plastics in our seas? So an estimated 8 million tonnes of plastic enters the oceans each year. Because of that, it's now one of the most recognised pollution issues facing the planet. I mean, we hear a lot about plastics in our seas, but perhaps you'd be able to shed a bit of light on what the impact of plastics is on the wildlife. So there are three main impacts that plastic pollution can have on marine wildlife and that is through entanglement, ingestion and habitat degradation. So entanglement can be in the form of debris from things like derelict fishing gear, plastic strapping, food and drink packaging. Anything that floats can entangle marine wildlife. That can cause injuries such as lacerations, amputation of limbs and flippers and wings. It can lead to increased drag and the associated energetic costs that come along with that, reduced ability to avoid predators. It can also lead to starvation and ultimately drowning. In terms of ingestion, this can be sort of on two main scales. Ingestion of macroplastic, which are large bits of plastic that are visible to the naked eye. 
Ingestion of these types of plastic can cause lacerations to the stomachs and intestinal walls of the animals. It can cause blockages and impaction, but it can also make the animals feel full, which then reduces their desire to feed. And that can mean that they become dehydrated and starve to death. And then you've got ingestion of microplastics, which are tiny particles of plastic that are usually defined as being less than five millimetres in size. They are quite often much smaller than this and most likely not visible to the naked eye. In terms of direct impacts, it's known to cause a reduction in feeding capacity, a decline in energy reserves, and reduced reproductive output in animals at the base of the food chain. So tiny microscopic animals like zooplankton and fish larvae. And in terms of the impacts of microplastics on larger animals like seabirds, turtles and marine mammals, We don't yet know whether it does have any kind of impact, either from the physical presence of the microplastics themselves or due to the chemicals that are on and within plastics that are known to desorb into biological tissue if they're ingested. And these chemicals can cause effects on immune system function and the reproductive output of these animals, but we don't know what kind of relationship those chemicals have with microplastic ingestion at the moment. And then habitat degradation is a really complicated one, and we don't yet fully understand what scale of impact plastic pollution is having on sensitive habitats like seagrass beds, coral reefs, and mangroves, for example. We do know that large bits of plastic can lead to smothering, sedimentation, coral breakages, as well as increased vulnerability to disease. Are certain species of wildlife affected more by one or the other type of plastic pollution, so entanglement over ingestion, for example? In terms of ingestion, we know that all marine turtle species can ingest plastic, and they seem to be particularly vulnerable to ingestion. And in terms of entanglement, pinnipeds, so that's your seals, sea lions, fur seals, they seem to be the most commonly found group of animals to become entangled and it's probably due to the fact they're so curious and they're so intelligent and they go up to the debris that they find floating on the ocean surface and get themselves entangled. What's the most horrific thing that you have seen out there? I mean we're all used to horrific images of wildlife with bellies full of plastic in the news for example. Uh, What's the worst thing you have seen? I think probably the most difficult things to read about when I'm doing my research is entanglement, just because the injuries are so horrific and so chronic that they take a long time to actually kill the animal in many cases. And so the animal suffers a great deal for a prolonged period of time. I mean, I'm investigating microplastic ingestion in marine mammals. So we examined 50 marine mammals that stranded around the British coast from 10 different species. And we found every animal we looked at contained microplastics. But the actual amount of macroplastics in in these animals was quite low. I only found one animal which had ingested macroplastics. And it's probably due to the type of feeding ecology that these animals exhibit. The animals we looked at are mainly raptoral feeders and they hunt for their prey rather than filter feeders like huge baleen whales. So plastic is everywhere, but we are really just scratching the surface. We know that vulnerable species like the Hawaiian monk seal, which is vulnerable due to other stressors such as historic hunting and habitat loss, that population is being prevented from recovering by high entanglement rates in big debris. You did touch briefly on um, your PhD research. If I could just ask you what exactly your PhD research is trying to tackle. 
So my PhD has got two elements. For the first half of my PhD, I looked at general marine litter from around the British coast. We analysed beach clean data collected by volunteers from the Marine Conservation Society over a 10-year time period. And we examined the data for information on the composition of marine litter around the British coast. So what are the most common items? What's the most common material? Where is the litter coming from? Also, have there been any changes in the overall abundance of litter or certain types of litter? And are there any areas of the UK that are better or, or worse off in terms of their litter abundance? And so, of course, unsurprisingly, we found that plastic was the most common type of material that was found on British beaches. And the majority of traceable litter items came from land-based activities, things like public littering. We found that the southwest England and South Wales coastlines had the highest levels of marine litter on them than anywhere in the British coastline. That's probably due to high beach use during the summer months by residents and tourists, but also their exposure to prevailing winds and currents from the Atlantic Ocean. And then after that, I've now started to look at microplastics and their presence within marine top predators, so namely marine mammals. We looked at trophic transfer of microplastics, so that's when microplastics in prey is transferred up the food web to the top predators. And to do that, we look at the scat, so species of grey seals that are captive in um, the seal sanctuary in Cornwall and the wild-caught mackerel that they're fed upon and we looked in both of those for microplastics and we use captive seals because they aren't exposed to marine litter like wild seals would be and so any plastic that we found in their scats could possibly be attributed to trophic transfer of the microplastics from their wild-caught fish which is essentially their prey. And then since then, yeah, I've done the analysis of 50 marine mammals that stranded around the British coast and find microplastics in every single one of them. And now we're looking at how microplastic ingestion in wild grey seals may be related to the type of prey that they consume. So if they're receiving microplastics through trophic transfer, does that depend on what kind of fish they're eating? So for example, are certain species of fish more susceptible to ingest microplastics than others because of their feeding ecology? And then how does that move the microplastics up the trophic web to the marine top predators? That's really interesting, Sarah. A thing that kind of popped into my mind there is we're currently talking about high trophic levels of wildlife ingesting plastic, but we're obviously also part of the food chain. Surely we must be full of plastics as well if we eat fish. Um, this is a question that I get asked a lot, and we kind of have to look at how we eat fish ourselves. So in most cases, we remove the digestive tracts or the guts before we eat them, and we normally only eat the flesh. And at the moment, we haven't found any microplastics within the flesh. It's not to say that it's not passing through the gut walls into the bodies of the fish, but we just haven't found any yet. And it's probably because those microplastics are so small that we're not able to detect them. Other routes of microplastics getting into us definitely exist. So microplastics are being found in tap water, in salt, in beer, lots of things that we consume. But also we have to remember that microplastics are in the air we breathe. Many of the synthetic textiles that we fill our homes with, that we wear in our clothes, they shed microfibers into the air every time we move. And so we're likely to be inhaling them as well. So you touched on a subject there very close to my heart, and that's microplastics in beer. This is very um, concerning. Because so much of our everyday items are made from plastic, and with wear and tear, plastic does shed particles and fragments and fibres, that actually not encountering tiny bits of plastic is really difficult. And that's one of the things that we found during our lab work. 
minimizing contamination from microplastics that are within the air and within the general space that we work and live in is a really difficult thing to eliminate and so we had to take special measures and with all the measures that we put in place we were able to eliminate contamination but in many cases and in many studies unfortunately contamination does skew the results a little bit and it is one of those things that's just so hard to eliminate because plastic is everywhere especially in the lab I don't know about you, Charlie, but um, I kind of temporarily stopped breathing. Yeah, I feel that's the only, I, th- I think that's the only solution, is it? We just, yeah, we stop breathing. Let's first finish this podcast. Okay, yeah, let's do that. So what's the biggest plastic culprit out there in LCs? Uh, without doubt, single-use plastic. It's one of those things that's designed for, as it's so-called, one single use. And sometimes it doesn't even get that before it's thrown away. We haven't developed efficient enough system to close the loop and prevent these single-use items from escaping into the environment. It's a resource we should be reusing and recycling, but instead quite often they just get put into landfill or escape into the environment and enter the sea. But it's one of those things that once you get into the habit of cutting single-use items from your life, it's actually quite easy, but you just have to analyse what you do on a daily basis and what movements you're going to make and try and prepare for that so you can take things along on your daily journeys with you. Take your reusable bottle. I literally go nowhere without my reusable water bottle. If you're going to have a tea or a coffee, then take your keep cup. If you think you're going to buy something, then take a a reusable shopping bag. I think those three items are my everyday essentials. Because just making those tiny, small actions and remembering those three things can really make a big difference to the amount of waste that we're putting into the environment. So Charlie, you already said that one of the big culprits here in London, for example, is single-use plastic bottles. And of course, we've got millions of people using plastic bottles and a major river, so that leads straight out to the sea. So what are we doing here at ZSL to combat plastic bottles? Firstly, I think a lot of the individuals working for ZSL are are trying to work hard on reducing their single-use plastic. We do a lot of reusing and recycling. But I think probably one of the best people to talk to about this would be our uh, plastic expert, who's working on our One Less campaign, Alice Chamberlain. One Less of what? One Less Plastic Bottle. So Alice, great to have you here. Thank you for coming along. Yeah, thank you for inviting me. It's very exciting. So we're going to come straight out with some numbers. How many single-use plastic bottles do we use annually in London? Well, as you guys were just saying, plastic bottles are a major contributor to plastic pollution in the ocean. In fact, One Less talks about plastic bottles as an icon for marine plastic litter. In the UK, we use 7.7 billion single-use plastic bottles a year. But Londoners are amongst the highest consumers of single-use plastic water bottles and use on average 175 a year, compared to 150 that are used nationally, even though we have access to clean drinking water straight from our taps. That is a remarkable number. 7.7 billion per year. So also what I've now figured out is that I'm not an average Londoner. There you go. Well done, it's good to be not an average. Yeah. <laughs> well, I could be above average, above but I'm happy average. to say I think I'm definitely below average because I'm very much like my tap water. Tap water is great. So tell us about this One Less campaign. When did it come about? What are its goals? Yeah, so I work as a project assistant on the One Less campaign, which is led by ZSL. We launched in 2016, so a couple of years ago now, and we're a collaborative project involving a number of other NGOs and organisations. One Less's aim is to reduce the amount of plastic entering the ocean by fighting it at source and eliminating the use of bottled water, starting right here in London. Our approach is rooted in value and working to create systemic change to catalyse and enable the whole system of hydration to change in London, 
So we're working across a number of different areas, including policy, stakeholders, infrastructure, design and communications, whilst also building up an evidence base through our scientific approach. So ultimately, One Less wants people, businesses and organisations all across London to go One Less and stop buying, selling and using bottled water for the sake of the ocean. How do you monitor single-use water bottles in the river? One Less designed and developed a Thames Bottle Monitoring Programme in 2016, in April, which has been designed to contribute and build the evidence base of the One Less project to be used to inform policy and conservation interventions, but also to be used as an impact measurement for the project. One of the indicators that we've been using to help us build up this bigger picture and to help us understand what's happening in terms of plastic bottle pollution right here in London and to monitor the changes over time is monitoring the number of bottles that accumulate on the foreshore of the River Thames. So we partnered up with the amazing team at Thames 21 who run a citizen science based program called the Thames River Watch and they've been doing a great job collecting bottles from the foreshore of the River Thames for many years. So during a bottle count volunteers will head down to the foreshore, they'll count the plastic bottles that have accumulated since their last visit or since it was last a clean up. They'll then collect all the bottles and they'll categorise them according to types so they'll find water bottles like we're talking about at the moment but they'll also find flavoured drinks bottles, lots of coke bottles, milk bottles and that kind of thing. As part of this monitoring work we conduct fortnightly counts across five different sites across London. So the volunteers go to Fulham and Hammersmith, Battersea, the City of London and Greenwich. So a nice mix. Sounds lovely. You say it started in 2016, I mean is it too early to share what you found so far? Has there been a reduction in the single-use plastic bottles in London? Well yes, so since monitoring began, we've counted in total so far over 47,000 single-use plastic bottles. So these have all been counted, collected and removed from the River Thames. Out of these bottles that have been counted, flavoured drinks bottles are the most common, but water bottles are making up 43%. But when we're looking at trends, so if we're trying to establish if there has been a reduction in the number of single-use plastic water bottles, There's obviously lots of different factors that are at play and we can't control for everything, but we've been able to establish the total number of bottles being counted across these five sites that we're consistently monitoring is in decline. And when we look more specifically at water bottles, our flagship species, these are also in decline since monitoring began. And actually what's interesting is that the proportion of water bottles making up this total count is also decreasing. So it's all good news from the results that we're seeing across these five sites. I love the way you talk about plastic bottles as your flagship species. Makes me think that all these volunteers that go out on bottle counts are essentially going on a plastic safari. Yeah. To find, you know, the big five or the big four or the big three. So how can people sign up to take part in these efforts? Because, you know, I quite like a safari. Yeah. Plastic or otherwise. Yeah, so Thames 21 actively encourage lots of volunteers to um, to take part. It's a, it's a great activity and it's something that you can kind of really get involved in in terms of science right here in London. The best way would be probably just to check them out online or to email them at info at thames21.org.uk. Excellent. Charlie and I are totally in. I've just signed you up for a plastic safari. I mean, I love the sound of these safaris. Are these safaris a little bit muddy? Because I love mud. Yeah, it's definitely a definite lot of mud involved. You need lots of wellies and clean clothes for afterwards. So how can people find out more about One Less and what's being done in London? So One Less has a brilliant website that you can find at onelessbottle.org where you can find out about all the different projects that we're working on. Last year we did a big project with the Mayor of London and the Greater London Authority to launch the London Drinking Fountain Fund. So you guys might have seen there's been a few new drinking fountains installed around London recently, which have got the fantastic One Less logo on them. So we've been working on an initial pilot around London to install 28 drinking fountains to make it easier for Londoners to refill while they're on the go. So far we've installed 22 as of last week, 
And these fountains have also been fitted with trackers so we can be able to monitor how much they're being used, which will all build into our evidence-based approach as part of One Less. And actually, as a direct result of this project, the Greater London Authority and the Mayor of London have committed to installing more than 100 more drinking fountains across London. More tap water for everybody. Exactly. So at the moment, I suppose they're pretty much confined to central London? Um, actually, they're, they're pretty widespread. So there are some in central London, but there's also some on the outskirts. We've got quite a few. Islington and um, Lewisham have got quite a few too. Oh, excellent. That's my hood. Always, anyway. always catering to your needs, Molly. <laughs> <laughs> if you've got one message for, for our listeners out there, what's the take-home message of one less? We know we've been talking about how London's got this plastic bottle pollution problem. And by going one less, it's a simple action that everyone can take to reduce the amount of single-use plastic that's in the ocean, especially right here in London when we have this amazing access to clean drinking water. In terms of getting involved and living the one less lifestyle, we'd invite you as an individual to join our community and take the one less pledge online if you haven't already done so, to pledge that you will always be using your refillable water bottle instead of using a single-use plastic one. But also we'd encourage representatives from different organisations that are already taking action to eliminate single-use plastic water bottles from their workplace to join our one less pioneer network where we're leading the way in making single-use plastic water bottles a thing of the past. Excellent. And while saying this, Alice was clutching her reusable coffee cup as well. So Living yeah. the brand. Living the brand. Very good. Yeah. Hashtag one less all the way. <laughs> <laughs> right, well, we've covered plastic bottles, uh, but that's not the only kind of plastic ending up in our seas and our rivers and impacting our wildlife. So if you want to find out what other plastic things are lurking out there, Moni, who do we call? A plastic detective... Correct. And we've got one right here. Uh, I believe it's Imogen Napper. Imogen, welcome and thank you for being here with us. You're a marine science PhD student at the University of Plymouth. How come you're a plastic detective? Yeah, good question. And it was actually a kid in a school that said, oh, so all the research that you do kind of makes you a plastic detective. And I think that that child hit the nail on the head, really, because it's always been quite hard to describe. But my research is looking at the sources of plastic going into the ocean. And we really home in on specific sources like microbeads and facial scrubs or washing our clothes and get the whole picture so we can better understand it and then also try and make it better. So minimise the impact. So you already mentioned the microbeads. They're, of course, the tiny little bits that you could until recently in the UK find in facial scrubs. But then you as a plastic detective, I hear, stepped in. Tell us what happened with microbeads. Yeah, I actually used to use facial scrubs and microbeads in, and it never really hit me that we could be washing our face with tiny plastic particles that then go down the drain, potentially through the sewage treatment works, and then into our oceans, making it a big plastic soup. And when I started my PhD, this was actually the first bit of research that I did. And it really shocked me to learn that manufacturers were putting plastic in cosmetics. No one had done any research before looking at how many tiny plastic particles could be in one bottle. For people that aren't aware, uh, microbees are tiny plastic particles that were abrasive, so used to get the dead skin off. I was in the lab for what seemed hours at a time, extracting all of these tiny plastic particles. And I'd go shopping and I'd be buying over 10 facial scrubs, so it looks a little bit crazy. The results were really interesting in that one bottle could contain up to three million tiny plastic particles. And then we were able to take this research and inform consumers like you and me that we have a choice and a voice in what we're buying so we can boycott them. And then this also got taken to government and the legislation came out banning them. So for the first study of my PhD, it was definitely a very exciting bit of research to be in the middle of. 
the now banned in the UK and has this been more widely adopted or is there still a battle to be fought out there? There's always still a battle to be fought, but the UK has banned them, the US has banned them, and there's many other countries that have or are on the chain to. So it definitely got a lot of discussion and education from that. And so what would you say would be the next microplastic to tackle here in the UK? Oh, good question. I'm probably biased because this is my next bit of research, but I'd say fibres from washing our clothes. So there's actually plastic in our clothes, in the fibres that we wear every day. Yes, and again, I guess like the facial scrubs, it shocked me still that our clothes could be made out of plastic. When I think of plastic, I think of a water bottle or something quite hard. When I touch my jumper and it's very soft, plastic doesn't immediately come to my mind. But over 70% of the clothes that we buy in the UK are actually made out of plastic. And then when we wash them in the washing machine, when they're swishing and swirling around, tiny fibres can come off our clothes and like the microbeads, go down the drain and potentially into our oceans. So these fibres, do they come off all of our clothes? You said it's only about 70%. Uh, is there specific fabrics that are big culprits? Well, 70% roughly of the clothes that we buy in the UK are made out of plastic. But there's so many different plastic types that are out there. And some research that I did during my PhD looked at specific fabrics and when we washed them, how many fibres came off. So we found for a synthetic, organic, a natural blend, which is polyester cotton blend, for example, 150,000 fibres came off our clothes for a typical clothes wash. For polyester, it was more at 500,000 fibres and a jumper made out of acrylic was the most at 700,000 fibres. So a huge proportion of fibres, because they're so small, can come off our clothes. And if we imagine that as your average wash and then how many washes you do a week to your street, to the town, to a city, to a whole country, the loss of fibres potentially entering the marine environment. As you were talking about the, the microplastics coming off clothing fibres, would you say there is there some work being done on raising consumer awareness? Yeah, and it's, it's a big tangle web of confusion and almost finger pointing, which it shouldn't be, of where does the blame lie? Because you could say it's us that we're buying the clothes, is it industry that are making the clothes, is it washing machines that aren't capturing the fibres or wastewater treatment plants that aren't capturing the fibres from their end? And the real answer is it's all encompassing. So it's, it's all of our problem, so it's all of our answer as well. So right from the beginning, can we make clothes differently in the way that they're woven so less plastic is shed? And it'd be great if all clothes could be made out of natural materials, but that can be quite expensive, especially for the average Joe family. Buying a, a wool jumper isn't on our top 10 list of things to buy. Then when we're thinking of the washing machines, can they input a filter into the washing machine itself so that it can be captured? And that's actually some of our new research that we're testing of different inventions that can try and capture them in the washing machines. Should government be enforcing legislation, making all of this happen? So it's a big tangle web, but it's fixable. Big puzzle piece. So you're doing research into this, into washing machines and fibres and trying to figure out how to filter them out. So am I right in thinking that your lab is full of washing machines? Yeah, literally. I'm right next to them right now. <laughs> that is so cool. Uh, for the purpose of the recording, please don't put them on spin cycle right now. <laughs> yeah, I won't. It'd be quite loud. I'm uh, on the top floor of our building, so the eighth floor, and in a tiny little lab on the top floor, I've got four washing machines that we've made into a washing machine lab. 
does it also sometimes happen that your co-workers come in with a load that they just don't want to do at home? <laughs> I get that joke a lot. So I think if I had a penny or a pound every time, yeah. I'd be a millionaire by now. Ah, oh, there you go. And I thought I was original. You, you are original. <laughs> Originally bad. You need. So apart from testing washing machines or filters in washing machines, I also hear that your research experience has led you to being the lead scientist on sailing expeditions. Yeah, it's called X Expedition and X Expedition is a series of voyages that are all female that go around the world to uncover the unknown about plastic pollution and other contaminants. And I was very lucky to be the lead scientist on leg two of the North Pacific expedition, which went from Vancouver to Seattle. And that was last summer. That sounds amazing. What does the lead scientist on one of those expeditions do? Oh, good question. Uh, it's quite weird because I'm, I'm very lab based as a marine scientist, not normally going out to the ocean. So swapping my lab coat and my safety specs for a life jacket and sunglasses was quite different. And the women that I had on board as my team were not scientists. They were journalists, fashion designers. We had university students. We had a really eclectic bunch of women. It was a very different experience to what I normally have. But at the same time, it was very inspiring. And it taught me that when you include others and data collection and science, it really builds their knowledge of the problem, especially in terms of plastic, and gives them that power that they can go back to their communities and their workplaces and their social circles and spread the knowledge of what's going on and how we can help. So what was the unknown about plastic? that you went to find out about? We were taking surface uh, water samples. We do that using a manta tool. So if you imagine a manta ray with its mouth wide open and it skims the surface of the water and any floating plastic bits would get caught in a mesh sock at the end that we can then analyse. So we're trying to see how far these fibres could travel, especially when we're in the, the middle of the ocean. And we were also taking sediment samples, looking at how plastic particles could be sinking uh, through the ocean down to the bottom of the seabed. There were lots of scientists involved that we were doing the data collection for. We sent them all of the data back and then in the next few months we should get results. And then we have to record another podcast. What's the next big challenge in the fight against the plastic pollution of our seas and rivers? I think everyone now knows that plastic's in the ocean and there's a lot of it and knowing where we can try and help in terms of water bottles, reusing them, reusable coffee cups, industry trying to minimise the amount of single-use plastic that they use, us trying to minimise the amount of single plastic that we use but the next part is looking at how we can actually mitigate it from getting into the ocean and work with industry and the government to try and enforce legislation and better decisions so we can make better choices in our own lifestyles. And I suppose communicating, although lots of people now are aware of the problem of plastic, communicating this still to the next generation, I suppose, is really important. Which leads me back to the kid that you were talking to that called you a plastic detective. Do you do a lot of outreach as well? That's my most favourite thing in the world. You, you've got the research and you have the data, but the best feeling is going and sharing that knowledge with other people and getting them excited about what they can do to help change the environment for the better. There's no better feeling than going into a school and seeing their faces when you're talking about the ocean. We're passing on this problem to them, so they're the flag bearers. So we need to give them all of our knowledge and all of our skills so they, they can help fight this problem as well. It's all very well talking about plastic pollution in developed countries, but what about the work that's being done in developing countries? To answer this question, I'm delighted to have on the line none other than Heather Calderway, Heather, you sound like you're out and about. Can you tell us what you're up to? 
right now I'm actually on the beach with a group of people who are cleaning up microplastics. So at first sight, this beach here in Cornwall looks really clean. But what we're actually doing is finding all the tiny bits of plastics, both large bits that have broken down and also these little things called nurdles, which is the start point of plastics. So you find these tiny beads in the sand. So we've got a whole team of local community members and holiday makers who are here picking the plastic out of the sand. Well, that sounds fantastic, Heather, although nurdles does make them sound rather cute, which I imagine they're not. Yeah, well, they're otherwise known as mermaid's tears, and perhaps that's a more emotive sound of the impact that plastic's having on the ocean and what we're doing about it. I totally agree, Heather. That brings me very nicely on to my next question. Uh, obviously, you're in a developed country at the moment, but we want to talk a little bit more about how ZSL are addressing some of the issues in developing countries. So what is the work that ZSL are doing out there? Tackling um, plastic pollution in a developing country context is quite different and quite challenging. Some of the places we've worked for many years is the Philippines, and that's the third biggest plastic polluter into the ocean. And certainly having been going out there for the last 20 years, we really have seen a dramatic change. So remote island communities where there's no bin man who comes around every week, no recycling system at all, plastic just accumulates more and more in those communities and there's nowhere for it to go. What you see is it then gradually leaching into the ocean. So diving around those islands, you see more and more plastic. And that obviously we know takes hundreds, if not thousands of years to go away. And even then it's breaking down into smaller and smaller particles. So what we have started to do was to actually see what was possible in terms of solving that kind of plastic pollution. And we picked on one very prominent item, and that's fishing nets. As fisheries become depleted, then people need more and more nets. And those nets are made of a very high-grade plastic called Nylon 6, which again lasts for hundreds, if not thousands of years in the environment. And that Nylon 6 is actually a very high-grade nylon. It's a very high-quality nylon that has a good value in the recycling market. So we were able to capture that and set up a very innovative supply chain from remote island communities in the Philippines right the way through to the only regeneration plant for this nylon where it forms part of a circular economy and it's made into a nylon yarn called Econil and then that goes on to make carpet tiles made by Interface, the world's biggest manufacturer of carpet tiles. That sounds so interesting, Heather. Can you tell us a little bit about how it's been going so far? We're really excited with what progress we've made. For a start, it addresses some of the fundamental needs in those communities. So what we do is we have organised community savings groups. This is a very simple but well tried and tested method of community banking. And this addresses some of the community's immediate needs for access to financial services. This also provides a mechanism for buying and selling nets. So these community groups will organise within and across communities the collection of nets. We have then worked out a system of bailing those nets into a more efficient form for shipping. And then we've obviously had to establish the export end. We've been measuring all sorts of things. We're a science-based organisation and we've been looking at everything from measuring the change in, in litter on the beaches, the change in the number of nets on the beaches, through to how adding that livelihood or diversifying the livelihoods of those communities has helped bring additional well-being and economic indicators. And of course, we've measured the amount of nets and it's really excited to report that we've exported over 225 tonnes of nets already from the Philippines and that's enough to go 
around the world five times as a functional fishing net. And all of those nets would have been lying around on islands or in the oceans if we hadn't set up this innovative supply chain. So how are the communities responding and how are they benefiting from programmes like this? From the community aspect, it's been as much about a way of cleaning up their communities as it has been around an additional income source. We found that trying to make a cleaner and healthier environment for their children to grow up and for them to live has been a huge motivator for them participating in networks. We started off really looking at, at one hub and a hub is basically a point which becomes economically viable. So it's about 10 villages that collect and aggregate nets to the point that we can accumulate those and then send them off to be exported. And we've replicated this now across the Philippines, and that's a model that we're planning to expand. So we've set up the proof of concept, we've got it working across these multiple communities, and we now are expanding into our fourth hub. So we're looking at multiple communities being involved and obviously multiple points where we can aggregate and export those nets. We're also now looking at diversifying that business model to include carrageenan from seaweed, as seaweed farming is also really common. But most importantly, we talk a lot about the statistic around there could be more plastic than fish in the sea by 2050, depending on which figures you look at. So it's not just all about less plastic, it's also about a lot more fish. So we've linked our network's model to bigger and better marine protected areas. And that's the mechanism we know increases the number of fish in the ocean. And then by decreasing the amount of plastic in the ocean, we're working at both ends of that spectrum. Well, it really seems like there's so many different aspects of this project. Where can people find out a bit more about this project? Well, we have our own website, which is net-works.com, or you can get to networks through uh, the ZSL website. What's also been great is we've been able to replicate it in Cameroon and more recently in Indonesia. So this is an opportunity that's both scalable and replicable. And for me, it's also been about innovative partnerships, working with Aquafil, who make the Econil yarn, and with Interface, who make the carpets. We're really showing the best of what business NGO partnerships can achieve, making difference for people and the planet. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Heather. That's very kind of you. Uh, I'll leave you to enjoy the rest of your day on what I imagine is a very hot and sunny, exotic beach in the United Kingdom. Well, having just got back from the Philippines two days ago, it doesn't feel quite as warm as there. But it is exciting to see what communities around the world are doing to fight plastic pollution, to change their behaviours and to reduce the amount of plastic going into the ocean. Well, thank you very much to Heather for keeping us informed about networks and all the amazing work that they're doing. If you did want to find out more information on that, you can. Uh, they do have a Twitter handle, uh, and that is at fishnotplastic, which I think is a, a very good mantra that we could all live by. Excellent. So a reusable bottle, reusable coffee cup, and reusable bag. Easy. Easy peasy.